Morning, church family. Two weeks ago, we finished preaching through Ephesians chapter 4. Last week, Dave filled in uh, while I was sick, and he took us back into Ephesians 4. He took us to verses 11 through 16, and he drove deeper, helping us to feel the truth that God has assembled us as a body, and that each member of the body speaks the truth in love to one another. We build a kingdom out of words. We build a kingdom with words. Today, we're moving to Ephesians chapter 5, the verses that Mike Louder just read for us. Before we go there, let me pause and let's pray together. I'm going to start with a few moments of, of silence. Father, there are too few of those opportunities to sit in total silence. And we want to acknowledge that we understand that we're gathered together as your people in your presence. There's a sense in which you're always with us, but there is a sense in which as we gather to worship you together, we want to be aware that you are with us. And that our worship, what's happening together in this room, is happening before a holy, righteous, merciful God. So we pray, Holy Spirit, for your help this morning to understand this passage as you intended it. That we would see Christ with clarity. We pray with earnest hearts that you would speak to us. And I pray for our non-Christian friends here this morning, that you would encourage them, that you would strengthen them, and we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. And we pray for the lights to come on too. (laughs) Richard, you might, to your left right there, hit some of those lights and see if we can get these lights back on. Uh, Here they come. You might have to hit all four of those buttons there. Okay, here we go. Let there be light, more light. Uh, Paul alerts us to the fact, he alerts us to a clear and present danger that exists for the church as we live together in the world. A clear and present danger that Paul wants to alert us to as Jesus's people. And here's here's the clear and present danger, that the presence of sin in the life of the church will rot and corrode. Sin is like mold that's growing behind a fresh coat of paint. Sin is like a deadly rip current that's flowing just below the ocean's surface. Sin is like deadly cancer that's spreading invisibly in the body. So sin is a clear and present danger in the life of the church. But there's a solution. Paul is not just pointing out the problem and the clear and present danger of sin, but he's pointing out the solution, and that is the body, the church, a local assembly, walking together as God's children, which is the governing image that he gives us this morning. As we walk together as God's children in the Father's love and light, we can forsake the danger that Paul raises for us this morning. 
So in some ways, this message is going to be a sober one because Paul is pointing out the sober nature of sin that remains in Christians and therefore in local churches. But on the other hand, I am praying that this is an encouragement this morning, that we receive comfort and confidence from the Lord's instruction to us, that He has given us a body that helps us to forsake and to turn away from and to live not in sin, but in the righteousness that God has made possible. Two points this morning. The first is to walk in the Father's love. This is verses 1 through 6. I'm going to start by reading Ephesians chapter 5 or rereading what Michael read, verses 1 and 2. Paul begins, therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. And you can see with the first word, therefore, that this is really a hinge. Verses 1 and 2 is a hinge that's looking back to what came before in Ephesians 4, but also introducing something new that's coming in Ephesians 5. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. There you see the governing image. And walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Now remember, we've seen this instruction to walk several times, I think four already in Ephesians, and it's just a quick way for Paul to say, this is how you should conduct your life. For Paul to say, walk in this way, he's just saying, as you go about your lives, walk. Live in a certain kind of a way. As you make decisions, as you feel emotions, as you work in jobs and buy houses and disciple children and relax on the weekends and spend your money, do it in a certain way. And he says that we should be informed by love. He says here that love should motivate and direct or guide the way that we walk, the way that we conduct our lives as his people. And this command to walk in love is surrounded by a few phrases before and after that help us understand Paul's meaning by walk in love. What does he mean to walk in love? We hear about love all the time. What does Paul mean by walk in love? Well, the first phrase is the one that comes before the command to walk in love, and that's we imitate God as beloved children. Our imitation of God is a response to his adoption of us as his children. We follow the God who has made us his children. We were rebels and enemies, and not only did Christ die to take away the massive debt that we owed, but God has also brought us into his family. And so this command to walk in love is motivated by a reminder that we've been adopted by the Father who we're commanded to imitate or follow. But the second phrase is, helps us to understand what he means by love. And we need to, to understand love. We don't want to look around in culture for a definition. We want to look back to Jesus' cross. That's what Paul is making clear to us in verse 2. Look at it again. And walk in love, how? As Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Christ's love is what motivated him to make a sacrifice on our behalf. And God was pleased with the sacrifice that Jesus made on our behalf. It was a fragrant, pleasing sacrifice to God. So Paul wants love to define our walk, our lives. That's what motivates us correctly to follow after God and to love the people around us well. It also helps us to make decisions and to make priorities. God's love defines this for us. 
You see, our culture says love is agreement. If you love me, then you will agree with me. If you disagree with me, then you do not love me. But biblical love imitates God. Biblical love takes cues from God's heart and from God's word, which reveals God's heart, all of which is eternal. It stands outside of all culture, and it says, for all time, this is God's heart. This is God's word that reveals God's heart, and biblical love imitates God's heart and God's eternal words. Biblical love also looks cross-like. Biblical love is committed and sacrificial. Biblical love is other-centered and God-exalting. Biblical love thinks outside of itself on behalf of another. And so our love for others is motivated by God's love for us, and it is constrained or rooted by our imitation of God. We don't just love in an unrestrained way. We love as imitators of God. We reflect His heart and His Word to the people around us. And so this means you can love your LGBTQ friend while disagreeing with them. That's okay to do. And you can do that because you love Jesus even more than that friend that he's placed in your life. And so walk in love is a summary of what it means to live the Christian life. It's a summary. You can sum up what Paul is calling on us to do in Ephesians 4 as walking in love. We'll see in a minute walking in light. We'll see next week walking in wisdom. But walk in love sums up how the church fights sin and pursues righteousness in a way that builds up the body of Christ. We understand that our fight for sanctification has a positive effect on every other member of the body. Now, Paul's going to get more specific. He's going to give us three, two sets of three sins that should not be a part of the local church. And these may be sins that were particularly tempting to the church in Ephesus, but I think they're sins that we can certainly relate to. First in verse 3 of Ephesians chapter 5. Here are the three, first three sins that Paul mentions. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among the saints. Now this word sexual immorality is the Greek word porneia. And it's a broad word that gathers up a variety of sexual sins. Now, what Paul has in mind here is all sexual activity that's committed outside of a committed marriage relationship between a man and a woman. That's what Paul has in mind with this word pornea. It's a very broad word for sexual sin. So he has in mind sexual activity before marriage or homosexuality or adultery and the like. Paul has all of these things in mind. Now, when he says impurity, it's just a word that means uncleanness. And it's not uncommon for Paul to connect impurity with sexual immorality. He does that at least five other times in the New Testament. And so based on the context and the connection to sexual immorality, Paul probably has a kind of sexual impurity in mind when he's writing this to the Ephesians. The third sin that he mentions is covetousness. He's referring here to greed. But it's a deep greed. This is a festering desire for advantage that can be mixed up with aggression. So Paul could have in mind here greedy sexual contexts or he could conquest or he could just be thinking broadly about the sin of greed, the fact that we're longing for something that we don't have and it's aggressive longing. 
Now listen, Paul says to the Ephesians, and we can think to Cherrydale, these three sins shouldn't even be named among you. These should be so far from your lives that no one could credibly land an accusation against you toward one of these particular things. It should be unthinkable for these things to be associated with you, the church. These behaviors aren't fitting. They aren't proper for those who walk in the Father's love, those who are motivated by the Father's love, who know they've been adopted because of the Father's grace, who are called to imitate the Father. So our love is informed by who God is. It's a response to who God is. These behaviors aren't fitting. They're totally out of step for God's children who are walking in the Father's love. And so think about the content that you're giving your eyes and mind and body and heart access to. The secret online chatting and the pornography needs to be put to death in God's people, among God's children. What are you streaming that really has no place in your home or on your device? And there's a call this morning, not just to flee a little bit. There is a call to flee a lot, to not dance about the line, to not fill your mind with content that feeds the dragon that's inside of you. As if to pour kerosene on a fire you're claiming to want to put out. Think about your relationships. Watch the intimate kinds of conversations and the subtle flirtation with coworkers. And if you're in a dating relationship, Maybe pick better locations for your dates to hang out so that you're rooting out the line-pushing behaviors. If we are God's beloved children, if we are walking in His love, then we need to walk in His love. And His biblical love motivates and constrains us. And we pursue sexual righteousness to the point that we can't even be accused of sexual sin. It is almost unthinkable to associate these things with God's people. It's a high calling. Verse 4, let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. Filthiness is obscenity or indecency. This is talk that should result in disgrace or embarrassment or shame on the part of the one speaking. Foolish talk is used only here in the New Testament, but it has the sense of worthlessness, nonsensical, babbling kinds of speech. And crude joking is exactly as it sounds, coarse jesting and irreverent talking. Paul says to the church in Ephesus, out of bounds for God's children, out of bounds for those who walk in the Father's love. But here's what is fitting, church, gratitude, thanksgiving. Don't just stop sinful speech, but employ gratitude. Let your word count speak of the unending faithfulness and the staggering love and the astounding mercy of our God. Paul says life is far too short to waste words on obscene, worthless, crude content. Instead, fill the air with gratitude. Use your words to proclaim the awesome ways that God is at work in your life as a Christian and together as a local church. Let the soundtrack of God's people be one of thanksgiving. And so give some thought to your use of profanity or to the jokes that you tell to others or to the things you post online. 
Jesus said that it's out of the abundance of the heart that the mouth speaks. And so our words are simply revealing and making known what's happening in our heart. And so if obscene, crude joking flows from your lips, know that it's sourced in our heart. Don't give quarter to it. Don't give yourself a pass because you're among other mature Christians or it's just between you and your spouse. Take your words seriously and put to death the words that need to be put to death and replace the junk that's coming out of our mouths with the sweetness of gratitude to God. And I'm using strong language because Paul is deadly and eternally serious about these warnings. Look at verses 5 and 6. For you may be sure of this, Paul says, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, he's connecting covetousness with idolatry, a longing for something that we don't have, a consuming passion for something we don't have. Anyone who practices these things, everyone who is these things, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, For because of these things, the wrath of God has come upon the sons of disobedience. The warning from Paul is clear and heavy. The sexually immoral, the impure, the covetous won't inherit. They will not inherit. Paul has a category for someone who thinks of themselves as God's son or daughter, but who is not a son or daughter. A person who will not receive the inheritance in the kingdom of God that they may be expecting to receive. It doesn't matter, you see, whether you call yourself a Christian or whether you think of yourself as a Christian. Paul is saying, if you are sexually immoral or impure or covetous, then you are not a kingdom citizen. You are not a child of God. Now, Paul is not saying that if you have committed these sins, you aren't a child of God. How do I know that? Because in 1 John 1.8, the Apostle John writes, If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. And I also say that because throughout Ephesians chapter 4, Paul is calling on the church to put off sin and put on righteousness. Paul is assuming sin. There is a sense in which Paul is assuming that sin will remain in the hearts of God's people and in their lives. And the job of a Christian is to turn away from sin toward righteousness. Every person in this room has failed with sexual sin and sinful speech. But are you giving yourself over to it? If a person persistently and continually gives themselves over to sin, then they are not walking in the Father's love. A Christian is not a sinless person. John says, if if you claim that you have no sin, then you're a liar. A Christian is not a sinless person. A Christian is a repenter. A Christian is someone who has broken ties with the world and is determined to pursue God's kingdom, to walk in God's love. A Christian is someone who is clearly exercising gospel effort to take off sin and to put on righteousness. Is this effort evident in your life? Is this effort evident to your Christian friends around you? 
Paul tells us to take these things seriously. Don't let anyone deceive you with empty, worthless words that sin isn't a big deal, that you can be casual with sin. Sin is a big deal. For because of these things, the wrath of God is coming. And instead of being counted among God's beloved children, Paul says you'll be counted among the sons of disobedience who will absorb God's wrath. The, the stakes are deadly high. And I realize that this is a sharp knife. I realize how deeply this cuts, but don't look away uncomfortably from God's Word. Let God's Word confront us as it should, because God's anger is patient, but He will come to judge sin. And so the question for all of us this morning to take seriously is, are we exercising effort, gospel effort, and we'll talk about what that is in a minute, to walk in the Father's love? And it's not just this list of sins. If we were to look elsewhere in the New Testament, we would find the same principle and we would find other lists of sins in Galatians 3, for example. The issue is not these particular sins. It is the issue of gospel effort to pursue righteousness. But let's not lose our balance. In Galatians chapter 3, the same Paul who wrote Ephesians chapter 5 writes this. Having begun by the Spirit... Are you now being perfected by the flesh? Paul wants the church in Galatia to contend with this fact. If it was the Spirit who saved you, if it was the Spirit who regenerated your heart, if it was the Spirit whom you responded to in faith, then why would you think you are being sanctified or perfected in your own strength? The same Spirit who brought justification is the same one who will sanctify Christians and the church into the image of Christ. Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? And so here's how this gospel effort works. We stare together at the cross. What kind of love is this? that God should come for his enemies and make them his children. And having stared at the cross, we ask the Spirit to supply the strength we need to resist sin and pursue righteousness. And having done that, having stared and having asked the Spirit for help, we suffocate our sinful desires. We exercise effort to turn from sin to righteousness. Even I, as a sinful father, don't expect perfect obedience from my children. I see their earnest efforts. And nor would I want their obedience without their love, as, as if slavish obedience is what any father, even a sinful father, wants from their children. But we rejoice, even sinful fathers, at earnest obedience, at a loving pursuit of what is right. How much more so our perfect heavenly father. And so if you are drowning in sexual sin or sinful speech or any other sin, Come home to your Father this morning. Come home to our Father of love this morning. He stands looking for you with His hand over His eyes, anticipating your return as His son or daughter. And when you return, you will find a Father rejoicing, a Father abundantly showering you with mercy. You may say, 
I've had to return five times already this week or 50 times already this week. It doesn't matter with him. You may wonder, how could a God like this still rejoice at my return? You say, God is tired of my sinning and repenting and sinning and repenting and sinning and repenting. You say, God has to be exasperated by my continual rebellion. And I say to you from Micah 7, 18, who is a God like you? pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance. He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all of our sins into the depths of the earth. And whether you need to come to Jesus for the first time this morning or you need to come to Jesus again this morning, you will find that the same God, that same heart exists in our Father. Love like this, committed, sacrificial love like this, it does not exist anywhere in creation. Love like this exists only in our Father. A Father's love that confronts and forgives and strengthens and guides and directs and delights. Walk in the Father's love. The second point that Paul makes this morning is that we should walk in the Father's light, verses 7 through 14. The command to walk shows up again in verse 8, but instead of walking in the Father's love, Paul calls on the church to walk in the Father's light. Look at verse 7 of Ephesians 5. Therefore, do not become partake partners with them. Do not become partners with them. Who does Paul say that God's children shouldn't become partners with? There's two clues here to help us. We can go back for a clue to verse 6 to find the sons of disobedience, those who will receive God's wrath, those who have rejected God. We can also go forward to verse 8 to find those who are in darkness. So don't be partners with the world or with unbelievers. He's not saying avoid the world. We're going to see that in a minute when we get to 1 Corinthians 5. He's saying don't become partners in sin. Don't yoke your wagon to sin. He's not saying avoid non-Christians. There's no way to do that and fulfill the great commission that God has given us. There's no way to love the world and avoid the world. He's talking about partnering with sin. Now look at verses 8 and 9. Therefore do not become partners with them for at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of the light, for the fruit of the light is found in all that is good and right and true. Why should God's children walk in the light? What's the motivation for walking in the light? Because we were darkness, but now we are light in the Lord. That's the motivation. We were darkness. But now we are light, we are radiance in the Lord, therefore walk in the light. Christians should always be humble people. We should always be humble people. We should never look at the world and think, how could they do X or Y? If we understand that we were darkness and now we are light because of the Lord's grace, then how could we ever be anything but humble? And notice that we 
were darkness. It's not just that we lived in the darkness. It's not that we dabbled in the dark. Paul says we were darkness. We were the problem. Sin wasn't just something we did. Sin was an identity. We were sinners. But now we are light. Now we are radiance in the Lord. Therefore, Paul says, walk as children of the light. Walk in the Father's light. And the fruit What results, what is produced as we walk in the light is all that is good and right and true. So how do we walk in the light? I think Paul gives us an offensive strategy and a defensive strategy. Look at verse 10 for our offense. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. The offensive strategy, what we want to go and do is look and see what is pleasing to the Lord. What will delight the Lord. As you live, as we make decisions and feel emotions and interact with others, the question we're asking offensively is, what would please the Lord here? What would delight his heart and do that thing? So you see the tempting image come come across your phone. What would please the Lord? You feel an urge to explode in sinful anger and you ask yourself the question, what would please the Lord? You perceive an opportunity to meet a need but you know that meeting the need is going to cost you, you ask the question, what will please the Lord? If as children we want to walk in our Father's light, then we have to ask the question offensively, what will please the Lord? Now the defense, verse 11 and 12. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them, for it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. Here's the defensive strategy. Take no part in the unfruitful, that is the profitless or empty works of darkness. Don't take part in them. But it's not just don't take part in them, not just avoid them, but expose them. To expose is to convict or to reprove. And so we want to perceive where works of darkness, he just means sin here, have crept into our lives, have slipped in under the curtain into our lives. And he wants us to root them out, to expose what is shameful, the secret things that are too uncomfortable to do out in the open. Paul says he wants us to expose them. Now, there is a sense in which the light of Jesus confronts the world. This is Jesus in John 3. He says, everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his work should be exposed. So Jesus is saying there is a sense in which as I come into the world as the light of the world, I'm going to expose the world. Jesus acknowledges that his radiant, holy presence in the world would expose sinners of their need to turn to Christ from sin. And therefore, as God's children imitate and follow God's love, as we live according to God's eternal standards, our lives, that is our choices, our feelings, our words, our decisions, there's a real sense that we will expose our neighbors to God's light. And that's good. Salt and light. But I don't think that's Paul's main concern here. Paul's main driving concern throughout Ephesians 4 and now in Ephesians 5 is that the church would live together in a manner worthy or fitting or proper to the calling with which we've been called. 
So Paul is calling Jesus' people to put off sin and to put on righteousness, to live the righteous life that God has made possible for us. I think Paul is more concerned about the church here than he is about the world. I think Paul is concerned and wants us to play a good defense, exposing the unfruitful works of darkness, just sin, that have crept into the church. Now, I think it's fair to say that the Christians seem more comfortable pointing out sin in the world than we are at pointing out sin in the church. I hope that's a fair assessment. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, the same Paul that wrote Ephesians 5 writes this to the church in Corinth. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of the world or the greedy and the swindlers or the idolaters. You can hear the overlap in his thinking. Since then, you would need to go out of the world. Paul's reinforcing perhaps what we just saw together, that he's not saying the problem. He's saying that, I'm not saying you need to stop associating with sinful people because then you need to leave the world itself, including the church. He's talking about what's happening inside the church. Verse 11, but now I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother, bears the name of Christian, if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater or a reviler or a drunkard or a swindler. You can see the broader list of sins that Paul has in mind. Don't even eat with such a one. So Paul's focus is not the sin that's in the world here. His focus is on the sin that's in the church. Don't associate with one who calls himself brother, calls himself a Christian, but has given themselves over to this lifestyle of sin. Verse 12, for what have I to do with judging outsiders, Paul says? What do I have to do with judging the world? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. Now, I brought in 1 Corinthians 5 because I think it's helpful for us to see what Paul has in mind in Ephesians 5. He's concerned about the church and the righteousness or lack of righteousness that exists inside the church. Brothers and sisters, we need to nurture courage to confront others in love. We need to nurture humility to receive correction from one another. When we see a brother or sister caught in a trespass, when we see someone ensnared by a sin pattern, they shouted at their kids, they lied to a parent, they're dancing with sexual sin, they're consistently selfish, whatever the case may be, we need to lovingly move toward them to clearly and gently expose the sin and to call them to repentance. But how we expose matters. Imagine someone sitting in total darkness for days and you come in armed with a flashlight if you shine the flashlight in their eyes, you aren't helping them to see at all. You're further blinding them. If we come in hot and shout the truth at a friend who's caught in sin, all we're doing is shining a flashlight in their eyes and blinding them. Instead, we need to come humbly, acknowledging that we need the help of the church here too. We need to come lovingly, we need to come courageously and we need to shine the light of the Bible on the problem. 
helping them to see, showing them to see how their anger is sinful or how their speech is polluting their community. And let's not pretend that it's loving to refuse to expose sin in each other's lives. It is loving to take a flashlight and to shine it on the floor and to tell your brother he's about to step on a cobra that's on the floor. Confrontation, loving confrontation is loving. In fact, a refusal to confront is more about self-love than it is about loving the other person. Because hard conversations are taxing and complex and they require long investment. And it can be far easier for us to look the other way to ignore the sin, to preserve our time, or to preserve the relationship. Walking in the Father's love and the light plays a good offense by trying to please the Lord, and it plays a good defense by exposing sin, particularly sin among God's children in the church. Now, notice how Paul ends in verses 13 and 14. It is a glorious invitation, a glorious appeal that appears to be borrowed from a first century Christian hymn. Look at verse 13. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore it says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine upon you. Anything that becomes visible is light. You kick the darkness, you kick the sin into the light, and the light neutralizes it. It takes away some of the power of it. You share that struggle with impatience or lust and it loses some of its power. You receive grace from other people and Satan's threats to you feel far less, far more empty as the shame is suffocated by God's grace. And so are you stuck in a sinful pattern this morning? Don't stay in the darkness. This is a call to non-Christian friends this morning who have never yet come to Christ to come to the light. And this is a call to every Christian in the room here this morning. Flee from the darkness. Sprint from the darkness and don't look back. Awake, O sleeper, from the dead, and Christ will shine upon you. Now let me end here. Because if we're not careful, we could leave this sermon with a cold, judgmental spirit in the air. We could leave this sermon, if we're not careful, with a confrontational tone that's completely uninformed by the astounding mercy that we've received. A communication with one another that's cold and calculating, unfeeling and grouchy. Paul's main image in this second half of Ephesians is a body. Christians are individual members gathered together in a body. And a body is interconnected. It's mutually dependent. It's invested in the flourishing of the rest of the body. Therefore, we should leave this message comforted and confident. Here's what I mean. Imagine a finger slammed in a car door. Imagine a finger slammed in a car, car door. What does the rest of the body do when the finger is slammed in a car door? The rest of the body rushes to help. The nerves of the body signal the pain. The eyes look on the problem. The brain thinks up a solution to the problem. The muscles and the tendons and the bones of the opposite arm move to the door handle and open the door and release the finger from being crushed. We should each leave this sermon comforted and confident, 
I am part of a committed body. I am not alone in my struggle with sin. If I get ensnared in some way, I am part of a body that will rise to my aid, that will see that there is a problem and that will take responsibility to find a solution. I'm part of a body that will not leave me crushed in the door. They will come. They will act to rescue me from my sin and they will gently restore me. They will gather all the ice and Tylenol that I require and they will restore me to full health. Now, of course, this is a call implicitly to be a meaningful member of the body. Because if you are an isolated, amputated finger crushed in a car door with no body, then there is no one to come to your rescue. Who will come if you've left yourself disconnected to a local body? God's beloved children walk in his love and his light. This shouldn't produce prideful judgmentalism, this should produce courageous humility and intentionality to come deliver the medicine of God's word to one another. Our church, walking in the Father's love and light, distributes the hope and the healing that we all need. Let's pray. Father, thank you for adopting us into a family. Thank you for placing us as individual members into a body. Thank you for taking us as individual sheep and putting us into a flock, collecting us together as the bride of Christ. I pray that we would leave here understanding the dangers, the clear and present dangers before us and the great gift of a body that's committed, that's humble, that's courageous, that understands the pressures, that understands the Savior. Make us gracious, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.